0: All right, time for the kids to come on up front. Even if you're visiting with us, about 5th grade or so and under, you're welcome to come up and join us. Feel free to bring somebody along with you if you'd like. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good to see you. All right, keep coming over, guys. All right. Good to see everyone this morning. So this morning, I'm going to start by reading you a verse from Psalm 19, verse 1. It says that the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. So this tells us that everything we see in all of creation shows us, it tells us something about the greatness of God. God. So when you look around at things in creation, you can think of how great God is. So think of a mountain. Imagine the tallest mountain. The tallest mountain is? Mount Everest. Good job, Liam. Mount Everest. And Mount Everest, imagine yourself standing at the bottom of Mount Everest, and it is 29,000 feet tall. That's pretty big, isn't it? 29,000 feet. But when you think of that, you should think, wow, how great is our God who created that, right? Or when you see at night, when you see the moon out, right? And you think about it going around the earth, this was mentioned earlier, around the earth once every month, right? And it gives, it reflects light to us during the night, right? You should think about, wow, how great is our God? He created the moon for us. And when you see the stars, And think about how far away they are. They're like light years away. You could never get to them. They're that far away. They're way, way out there. You should think, wow, how great is God? He is so great that he could create all of this, even this big distance, these stars way out. And so when you see all the wonders of creation, you should think about how great God is. But then as we consider all these great things that God has created, We also need to think about ourselves, right? Because when you see that big, huge mountain standing before you, you can feel kind of small, can't you? Or when you consider how far away the stars are, you might even feel a little unimportant at the greatness of God's creation, the greatness of God. But God also created you, and he created you with a special place in the midst of all of his creation. You are created to be like God, and you're created to worship God, to worship God. And so as you look at all the things that God has created, all of his creation, you should be reminded about how great and awesome God is. You should consider the fact that you were created to worship this great God. That's why you were created, and you should praise God all of the time. We should always be talking about how great our God is how wonderful he is, how awesome he is, how majestic he is, and how worthy of our worship that he is. And so today in Psalm 8, we're going to hear more about our great God, his great creation, and how it should lead us to see him and know him and to worship him and have his praise always be on our lips. So you can go back and have a seat and listen as Pastor Jeremy comes and preaches. Thanks for coming up.
1: All right, thank you, Pastor Jeff. Good to see all the little gals and guys. We are in Psalm chapter 8. If you'd turn your Bible there with me. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, it's pretty much smack dab in the middle of it. Also, there is a table of contents in the beginning. If you'd like to look it up, you can do that. So Psalm 8 helps us understand God's love towards us. And I want you to think of it in this way: Love is often expressed in giving. Um, you give of yourself, you give of your time, you give of your energy, you give of finances, maybe gifts, but uh love is giving. Love is um, not withholding but giving and and so God, of course, is love and. His fullest expression of His love towards us is in the giving of His Son. And in the giving of His Son, uh, we see His love expressed in that we were once separated from Him by sin, now reconciled to Him through His Son. And that's love, but there's a greater purpose to that love. And the greater purpose of that love is that you and I can again realize the fullness of joy and pleasure in intimacy with God as Father. And so there's nothing greater for you than for you to enjoy God. Did you know that? There is nothing better, more thrilling, more pleasing, more satisfying for you than to know and enjoy God. And so here in Psalm 8, we see David doing that. We see David contemplating creation, and it moves his soul to consider the greatness of God. His soul is thrilled in God, and then he has this reflection on how small he is and yet how God cares for him, and you can just feel the enjoyment, the pleasure, the satisfaction of David in God, and that God gave David that experience is the greatest love which God can love us to give him to give us himself. And so, Psalm 8 is expressing to you the greatest thing that God could ever give to you, which is Himself. Joy in Himself. And in fact, we see in Psalm 8 that God created everything that He created. For that one main purpose, that you can look at it, so you can observe the heavens, you can observe the the earth and all the animals and all the birds and all, all the fish and all of it. You can observe other human beings and have your soul moved up towards God and enjoy Him. That's why God made everything. As one huge love gift to you to thrill your soul on Him. That's what it's for. That's what we see in Psalm 8. Now, you might also be aware that in the first eight psalms, this is the one, the first one that's really a a full psalm, psalm or song of this praise and adoration and joy. Other psalms visited it in a verse or two, but the previous psalms have been warfare psalms or psalms of sorrow over sin or psalms fearful of what the enemies are going to do and calling on God to give justice. And here then, after all of that, David sits back and sings a psalm of praise. And I I just want to encourage you. I think sometimes we want to over-spiritualize this. We want to live like as in a perpetual Psalm 8. And sometimes you think that your job as a Christian is just to kind of manipulate your feelings or deny the reality going on around you, lie to yourself about how, difficult and maybe awful your life really is, that sorrows really aren't sorrowful or something, and you're just supposed to kind of strengthen yourself up, get yourself all jazzed up into a perpetual psalmate kind of thing and wear a plastic smile all the day long. But out of these eight psalms, only one is like this. The other psalms are sorrowful or angry or confession or or what have you. And so don't forget, we still live in a post-Genesis 3 fallen world where you still do have to deal with your sin and the sins of others against you. You do have to deal with a world in rebellion against God. And yet, maybe on every seventh day, we can do Psalm 8. And so this is kind of a Sabbath psalm, isn't it? A psalm of joining with God's people, remembering the greatness of God, reminding ourselves of how little we are and yet how incredibly God has cared and loved for us. And we can praise him, kind of forgetting everything else that's going on. And so this psalm is, again, meant to be sung, you see, at the beginning. In the, in the, in the title, we have, To the Choir Master, to the Chief Musician, According to the Giddeth. And we have really no idea what that means. Uh, some, I mean, there, if you read commentators, there's all different ideas of what it means. It, it's probably some kind of a musical term, maybe a higher beat because of it. Who, who knows? Uh, but it's meant to be sung. It's meant to be sung. And so we got to do that this morning. So that's an intro to it. Let me read it, pray, and I want to talk a little bit more about the structure before getting into the praise of it. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, or out of the mouths of babies and nursing infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over all the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray. Righteous are you, O Lord. Amazing is your creation and right are all your rules. You have appointed your testimonies in the skies above and in the words of your holy scripture in all faithfulness. May Zoom conceal us. May zeal for your holy name and for your word consume us, especially because there are so many who forget your words. Your promises are well tried and proven, and so we love them. Father, we are small. Sometimes despised and yet teach us to never forget your words. Your righteousness is righteous forever and your law is true. And so when trouble and anguish find us out, God, may your commandments be our delight that we may live in them to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So you can see pretty plainly that the psalm begins and ends with this bookending of adoration to God. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And then in between this... Is this delightful thinking on the greatness of God's creation? And as Pastor Jeff said, like coming up against Mount Everest and just having this awareness of how puny you and I are. Right? I, uh, my parents played softball when I was a kid. Um, and they had a team that our team sponsored. What was that name of that short guy who always wore spandex? Probably shouldn't say it on the camera. Anyways, he was shorter than I was, and he always wore full spandex. You know, it was like the 80s. We don't do that anymore, thank God. But uh, he got in a verbal match with the guy who was pitching, and the guy who was pitching was like 6'6 and ripped. Remember that? And this little guy went out to the big guy, and he's like looking at him. Like his finger can't even reach to his nose. And he was just puny. It was humorous to the rest of us watching this, this little kind of lap dog you know, barking at a wolf or something. And it's that kind of experience that David's having in Psalm 8, that he just realizes how small, how little he is, and then he thinks back to Genesis 1 and 2, and yet, over all of this majestic creation, over all that your fingers have made, over all that your hands have set in place, you have put us as kings over all of this. Why are you so mindful of us? Why is your care so caring for us. And so in this meditation of the wonders of creation leads to profound humbling of man because of God's care for him. And then at the beginning of it, at the end of it, David bursts out in praise. And so this psalm is a psalm of high praise and adoration. He begins, if you look in verse 1 and at the end of verse 8, the first Lord is capitalized. That should always remind you that this is Yahweh, this is God's personal name. This is Jehovah, the name that God revealed to his people exclusively to remind his people of uh, that he is the one true living God and he is their God and he's come to rescue them and care for them and, and that they are his specially chosen people among all the peoples of the earth. And so this Lord, this God, this Yahweh, this Jehovah, this Savior, this great God overall all God is our God. O Lord, our Lord. And so there is only one, and he is ours. And so we praise him. And and, and, and this Lord is our Lord. This is a statement of submission, isn't it? O Lord, our Lord. O Lord, my Lord. O Lord, I give myself to you. I come underneath your authority and submission. You do come and personally save us and yet you are lord over all things and and I want to submit to you and so in this psalm of great praise is this reality of submission and so you have to begin there of course the singular christian confession is what what is it to be a christian Jesus is lord we have no other do we brothers and sisters There is no God but the true and living God. And so, can I ask you this past week, how was your submission to the Lord of lords? How did you walk before him? What idols did you bow down to more than him? Who did you give your affection to more than the king of all kings, the savior who gave himself for you? So we are in submission to him and his name is majestic in all the earth. Uh, One of the things that is a fault among Christians really for about the past hundred years is this kind of individualistic religion where it's just you and your Jesus. It's just you and Jesus in your own kind of unique, individualistic, autonomous religion. The gathering of the church is nice, but it's just you and Jesus. And in fact, if you decided not to come to church and go golfing or not to come to the church and knit that you could have just as profound a fellowship with Jesus because he is your personal individualistic kind of God in my pocket, Jesus. And so I think it's really good of David, oh Lord, my Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. He is our God, he is our Savior, and yet he is majestic over All the earth. In fact, today there'll be tens of millions of people of every tribe, nation, tongue, and language gathering to worship this God over all the earth and expressing praise worship just like we're doing. He is a great God, His name is majestic. What is majesty? Majesty is a religious term, we don't use it very often. Now, we use the word awesome a lot, right? It's it's probably one of the most abused words in our day. Everything's awesome, isn't that a song? Everything is awesome. What is that from? The Lego Movie. That's right. Uh, you know that. You know the season of life. I in when that song comes to mind, just then. Um, but everything's awesome, right? Awesome. Ice cream is awesome. The sunset is awesome, right? The The play made in the baseball game is awesome. Everything's awesome. So it's kind of lost any meaning. Awesome is a religious word. It's meant to tell you how awesome God is, but everything's awesome, so nothing's awesome. But majestic still has some meaning. We don't use it. We don't say, wow, Giannis's move last night was majestic. Well, not that, but. And so majesty, it's God's beauty, it's his grandeur, it's his regalness, it's his exaltedness. And so David is enjoying God's majesty, his greatness, the wonder that is God. And his majesty, his glory is above the heavens. So if you think of the heavens, there's nothing more majestic that you can see with your eyes than the sky, the blueness of it, the clouds and all their shapes, or at night, all of the stars. It's a wonder. If you... Can you get outside of town into a clear area on a clear night and look? It's a wonder. It's an amazement. And, and it's glorious. And God's glory is greater than that glory, if you can imagine that. The splendor, the majesty, the amazement of God is higher than that even. The, the billions and billions of stars and the billions of galaxies, God's glory is more expansive than even that. And that's how his glory is in all the earth. And so that's what David's thinking about. David's meditating on this great glory and majesty of God. He has his mind filled with all that he knows up to that point that God has done in human history and speaking creation and existence and saving Noah from the flood and redeeming Israel out of Egypt and He's thinking on these things and it's causing him to enjoy God. And so that's what we hope we get from Psalm 8. David is meditating. Back in Psalm 1, you turn back a page, it says that his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. So you might ask yourself, what is meditating? Well, Psalm 8 is meditating. Psalm 8 is chewing on its... Savoring, it's contemplating the greatness of God. You'll see in verse 3 when I look to the heavens, David is observing. And in his observations, he's thinking about it, he's pondering on it, he's mulling it over, he's giving himself to what in our day feels like a waste. We're Americans. We don't do this. We need to be busy. We need to be active. We need to be productive. So it's either we need to be productive and active or amused. We, we need to do something that produces something or we need to be glued to a screen. What we call, I just need some brain dead time. Yeah, boys, is that you guys? Glued to a screen? well, that's what I want to go to. Why don't we do this? Why don't you give yourself to this kind of meditation? Why have we lost any even ability to do this anymore? Isn't it related to the reality that we're just glued to screens all the time? That you you don't look to the heavens, the work of God's fingers, the moons and stars that he's set in place we don't give ourselves this kind of meditation because of phones and tablets and movie screens and vehicles because your kids can't go two hours without watching a movie and you need the babysitter in the back of the, the vehicle, right? Because how dare we ever be bored? David's meditating. Can I ask you, do you get as much fun and joy and pleasure that David seems to be having in Psalm 8 with your screen? Just look at the pleasure David has here. Look at the fun he's having. I mean, wouldn't you just give something for this kind of pleasure and repose and delight that you can feel David has here? So David looks at the heavens. He considers the animals and the birds and the fish and how they all declare the infinite majesty of God And he begins to think, why has God done this? And the answer is for us, for our enjoyment of him. And yet we're maybe too often distracted by things which which cannot give the deep sense of transcendence and awe and wonder, but instead we live as the book in the 80s said, like Americans just want to be entertained. We just want to be amused, amusing ourselves to death. You might remember Jesus one time was being rebuked by the Pharisees for being a glutton and a drunkard. And Jesus said, Well, what do you want? John the Baptist came fasting, and he rebuked him for his religious severity, and now I come giving good wine at weddings and with joy and happiness, and he rebuked me. And he, and he said to them, basically, You're too dull for a funeral or a wedding. You live in this gooey, mushy middle of nothingness. You're just existing. You don't have the joy and wonder, nor the gravity for a funeral, nor a wedding. You just just exist. And here, God has created us to have kingship over his creation and enjoy it to his glory. So, David's meditating on creation and God's spe- spectacular glory in it. The heavens. Just think of the tilt of the earth. Does anybody know the percent tilt of the earth? Come on, you homeschooled kids. Somebody's got it. Liam, got some help for me here? Huh? 23.5 degrees. Why does that matter? Well, that's how we get snow in the winter and our beautiful summers. As I said, there's somewhere between 100 and 500 bat planets in the Milky Way alone, and they think there's 80 billion other galaxies beyond it. <laughs> and God, it says, has set them all in place with his fingers. Animals, we. Mandy got a new plant a few weeks ago, and we found this little green tree frog in it. And this thing could leap like 20 times its height, and the whole body was sticky. You could put your hand against its back, and it just stuck. God made that. I, we, I like watching nature documentaries, and my children tolerate me making them watching nature documentaries. And I remember one we were watching, you know, David Attenborough. And he's a godless man, but his voice is just so enjoyable to listen to. And he is talking about turkey vultures. And um, the turkey vultures typically find their carrion by smell. And so one night they they put a whole bunch of beef and, you know, meat and kind of put it under leaves so they couldn't see it, and half a mile away, the turkey vulture could smell it and came down to it. It's fascinating. Hummingbird's heart beats a thousand times a minute. <laughs> you know that the great blue whale's tongue weighs as much as an elephant. It's spectacular. Spectacular. And we're not even talking about the more mundane bluegills and crappies and perch and walleyes and northern and so on and so forth. And this David's thinking about all these things that God has made them, God has created them, and He has placed man with dominion over them. And He worships God in song together with God's people. That's where He goes. This isn't a song sung by yourself in the car. This is a song sung, gathering together, given to the chief musician to rock all of God's people together. That's what it's for. That our delightful meditations on the glory of God and all of creation and on how much he's cared and loved us, gathering together to sing his praise. So that's what it's for. But... Before I apply that, let's just consider Christ in Psalm 8. I forgot to say it in the intro that this psalm is a favorite in the New Testament. It's quoted or alluded to in in several places. You'll you'll see a few of the familiar ones um, in Hebrews 2. We'll turn there. If, If you want to turn there now, we'll get there in a moment. So Psalm 8 begins in creation and and it's going all the way to the end of time in Christ's return. In this psalm, we have from creation to new creation. The whole thing is in this psalm. Of course, you can see creation in that God has created all things. He, it's the work of his fingers. He then put man in dominion over them. Don't forget this, brothers and sisters. You were created to rule this earth, to bring it in, into submission Under us to be used for our goodness and our provision. And David's contemplating that, but but then it goes all the way to new creation. And what we'll see in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and Ephesians 1 this looking at Christ, all things under his feet. That is, when Jesus came and died in our place for our sins, he was raised up to his name being above every other name. All things coming in subjection under him. And in the First Corinthians 15, the last thing to be subjected to him is death. At the end of time when he'll return and set up his kingdom on earth forever and will reign with him over all things. And so in this psalm, we see the entirety of world history from beginning to end. But it's particularly about Christ. If you're in Hebrews chapter 2. In Hebrews chapter 2 verses 5 to 9, this is applied to Christ. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man, that, that you are mindful of him, or the son of man, that you care for him. You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. It's been testified somewhere. Well, we know where that somewhere is. Psalm 8. And then in verse 8, it applies it to Christ. Putting everything subjected under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, to Christ, it leaves nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him. We see him. It's echoing Psalm 8, isn't it? David was seeing something. He was looking upon something. Now it's commending God's people to look upon something, to contemplate something. We see Christ. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. There's Psalm 8. Christ, though the exalted eternal God, took on humanity, took on a servant's form, being created in man's image just like us, being found in human form lower than the angels. Namely, Jesus now crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. And so the author of Hebrews is meditating on Psalm 8 and it leads him to Christ. He's considering the one who is for a time made lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor above all, because he tasted death for us. And that's what you get out of Psalm 8. That's what you get out of singing and meditating on Psalm 8. You get the glory of God in the gospel. Now the context of Hebrews chapter 2 is actually warning. In two, one it says, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift from it. This is what Psalm chapter 8 is supposed to do for you, actually. It's supposed to draw you up again to the glory of God and become humbled before him and see your need for him as Lord and Savior. And so, brothers and sisters, do not neglect this great salvation that God has worked for you in Christ. Do not neglect. So young, young people, you're mostly in this church, you're being raised in Christian families with a mother and father, maybe one parent who loves Jesus. This faith must become your own. There's nothing your mom and dad want more than for you than to dwell with God forever and in eternal heaven. To live all of your days for his glory as a redeemed sinner. Not perfect by any means, but hopefully a little better than your parents were. That's what we want for you. But do not neglect this great salvation. You're going to see two young people get baptized this Sunday. Last Sunday we saw two young people get baptized. And now what they're to do is not neglect that great salvation that they've given evidence to in their baptism. And so do not neglect it because you will pay for it in all eternity, neglecting it. So Psalm 8 is to draw your attention to the glories of God in creation, humble ourselves below him. But what I want to do is I want to apply it in two ways. I want to apply it to the gathering and corporate worship of God's people to praise God. And I want to apply verse 2, this singing of babies that shut the mouths of God's enemies. We have seen during COVID that the church has sometimes been lumped together with those other businesses or organizations that are thought unessential. And some states have actually made mandates specifically targeting the church. No singing or no gathering, though abortion clinics can remain open in bars and so on, but not the church. And so... The world, which comes as no surprise to us, sees the world as unessential. But dear brothers and sisters, in Psalm 8 we see a song written of high praise for the gathering of the church. And throughout Scripture, the church is the most essential organization, the most essential gathering on the face of the earth. David sings in a later psalm how glad he was when he was called to worship with his brothers and sisters. Jesus was so offended at the abuse of the gathering of God's people that he went in there with whips and cleaned it out because it was supposed to be a house of prayer to the glory of God's great name. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, the church alone of all institutions of the face of the earth is the pillar and bulwark of the truth. In Acts chapter 2, after Jesus had ascended and Peter preached the gospel and several thousands came, the first thing they did was gather together every resurrection Lord's day to worship the God and to attend to the apostles' teaching. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the gathered body of Christ is the visible representation of Jesus on earth as we all, the members, gather together and worship him. There is nothing more essential on the face of the earth than the gathering of God's people to worship him in song. Now can I ask, could it be that the reason the world Thinks the church so unessential is because we often treat the church as that. That we give more attention and more essential energy to so many other things on the earth other than Christ's people. That we'll miss a Sunday gathering because we're tired. or because there's something else we'd rather do. And so by our own actions, we treat the church as less essential. And so why should we expect the world to do anything else? Now, I know this doesn't apply to all of us. And I know that we're in a unique season with COVID, and so I want to be gentle with those of you still tuning in the live stream. There are good reasons for you to not gather yet. But here we see a song written contemplating the greatness of creation, the goodness of God, to gather in God's people to sing together. And I just want to urge you to see this truth that there is nothing, and this is not an overstatement, that there is nothing more important to your life than the gathering of God's people. Nothing. Let me apply this to parents. Parents, there is nothing more important to your child's eternal life than gathering together in a God-glorifying local church. Your own family devotions, your, your own religious life is central, but not as important as God's church. Nothing. Let me apply this then even more. David, you know, one of the things we talk about here often is singing, singing and singing loud, especially to men. And so, brothers, can I, can I ask you to endure one more? Me kind of pressing in on you to sing. I was thinking, why is it sometimes that men just don't sing? This applies to women too. Some, some, some women here don't sing. But why, why, why are men often more reluctant than women just to sing with some gusto and show some emotion and pump the fist and... Tap the foot or clap the hands or let something be seen on your face, other than. Why are we reluctant? Well, I think for whatever reason, our current definition of manliness doesn't include zeal and song. I don't know how that happened, but if you know anything about history, men were always singing, whether on ships or working together in the fields. They were singing and often singing loudly, they were instrumental. And so here we have an example of David who is, if we can be honest, like a manly man. What do you know about David? Well, the dude killed bears and lions with his bare hands. <laughs> he, he, he once faced a giant down, you know, with a sling and a stone. He, he didn't have a 50 cal from 1,000 1, meters out. He went toe-to-toe with an elite commando warrior and to the delight of every young boy in this congregation, stuck him right between the eyes with a stone. And if that wasn't enough, <laughs> he went and disarmed him with his own sword and then cut off his head. Like David's the manliest man in the Bible, maybe next to Jesus. I, I mean, if there was a barbecue contest, I bet you David would win that too. Right? I mean, this, I'm looking at Sean and Becca. We did an elder's wise retreat last fall. What did you say, Becca, about Sean? It just that Sean's like the manliest man ever. Sorry. We were, I'm sorry if you don't think it's that funny. It was really funny at the time. But that's David. And what does David do? He sings. He even writes songs. I mean, if David is here singing, what do you think he would be like in his demeanor up here? You remember that time when they were bringing the ark into the city? And David, it says, was singing and dancing with all of his might before the Lord. He embarrassed his wife so much that, that she didn't want anything to do with him. And David said none and she didn't have any more children the rest of her life. That's the kind of zeal David brought to corporate worship. And so brothers, can I just, I I, I don't want to embarrass you. I don't want to shame you. I just want to ask, can you make this a prayer for your life? To learn to sing with zeal. At the top of your voice. With some expression, with some, like let it be a part of your definition of a man that men sing. That we learn how to do that. I know not everybody's going to always do the same. There's not a, going to be like this perfect line, but that we get there, especially you young men. Because you know what the world hates more than anything? It's God's people gathering together to sing. You know what the world hates second most? Babies. Young children. David moves... Very simply and very sweetly, from this high praise and adoration in verse one, "O oh Lord, oh Lord, how majestic is your name, all, Just so simply and sweetly to thinking about babies in verse two. It's really amazing how the Bible does this: Lion and the lamb, right? This great, powerful lion who's also a crucified lamb. From the majestic praise of God on high to a suckling infant is the literal rendering here. To a, a baby at his mother's breast is where David moves to from one verse to the next. It's, it's really, really sweet. The, the message translation of the Bible Says this, nursing infants gurgle choruses about you, toddlers shout the songs to drown the enemy and silence atheist babble. <laughs> and so here we see a couple of things. We see the great power of God using the weakest and most simple to shut the mouths of the most proud and learned. That's the point here. You see how far man has fallen in that the vast majority on earth deny the glory of God in creating all things. And so God sets up babies in their cooing and in their giggling and in their playfulness to show the great wisdom of God before the, you know, the lives of people too proud and intelligent to give God glory. And babies in the Bible are very precious to the Lord. Remember John the Baptist in the womb, when he meets Mary pregnant with the Lord and he leaps. Or Jeremiah set apart from the room, uh, set apart in the womb uh, for God's glory. And so the heart, the, this part of Psalm 8 is quoted in the New Testament in two places. Jesus in Matthew 21 enters Jerusalem triumphantly. On the eve of his destruction, heals the blind, enters the city triumphantly to great adoration, goes in the temple, sees what a mockery they made of it, cleanses it, and the children cry out, Hosanna to the son of David. They're singing. And the proud, the learned men, the men of great importance are indignant. That's what we read in Matthew twenty one. They're indignant. <laughs> they're indignant. How dare these children praise Jesus as if he's anything, they're indignant. And Jesus says to these religious, proud, well intelligent they got letters behind their names kind of guys. He says to them, hey haven't you ever read Psalm 8? These are the people who have the entire Old Testament memorized. And Jesus says to them, hey, haven't you ever read out of the mouths of babes and infants, out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, God has ordained praise. And you know what they were after that? Quiet. (laughs) Babies shut them up. And so Jesus lauds the faith and sweetness and simplicity of children. He welcomes them, He makes room for them. Last week, Aiden and Owen Blair were baptized. Are they here? I think they're on vacation. Oh, they are here. They are. And I think it was Aiden in his testimony said. I, you know, I want God to help me not get angry when somebody does something wrong to me. Something like that. Was that right? Aiden, you remember that? Yeah, that's right. I just thought, how, how awesome. How simple. How beautiful. What a lesson. One of the things we can do in the church, the mistake we can make is, we were debating this at our last elders meeting about, when children should be allowed to take communion and when they shouldn't. Pastor Jeff brought up a really good point, kind of basically saying, sometimes we in the church can just kind of squash children by expecting them to have this adult-like maturity. And so because they're children and we want to set the bar really high for them, we just kind of squash them, discourage them. Maybe even embitter them because we, as adults, just look down on their Faith and their simplicity, and it's not like us, and so you shouldn't take communion yet, or you shouldn't be baptized yet. And yet, here we see. Psalm 8, out of the mouths of babies and nursing infants, you have established strength. You have perfected praise because the foes is still the enemy and the avenger. We should have lots and lots and lots of room in our understanding of what mature Christianity is and never, ever be embarrassed by the faith of children. Yes, discipline them. Yes, expect them to obey you. But let's be careful not to look down on the children in our church or in your home with consistent disapproval because it's never quite enough. It's never quite enough. I know I'm a parent. I know how terrifying it is to th- wonder if God is going to do what you want to, him to do with your child. I get it. There's nothing more frightening than the parent than wondering if the Holy Spirit is going to bring your child to living faith in Jesus Christ and grow him up to maturity or her up to maturity. It's terrifying. And then you wed your appearance or how others think about you to the performance of your child. And you want your children to be well thought of before others so that you're well thought of before others. I get it. I'm there. There's no more scrutiny in the church than the pastor's kids. It's terrifying. But we ought to take care listen to Jesus' words and not hinder the children, not to put obstacles of our own making before them out of fear, and that's what it is. Kids are kids. I think is what Pastor Jeff said. Let them be kids. And so God is enough for your child, you know that? God is enough for the faith of your child. He really is. And so we want to be the kind of church that's grateful for children. And is there anything more glorifying to God than, the, than a nursing child? Do you see that in verse 2? Is there anything more beautiful or wondrous, more glorifying to God than a nursing child? And the world hates them. The world demands comfort and autonomy and sees babies as leeches to be destroyed. That's it. Because you know when you have a child, especially as a mother, your life is over if you're going to be any kind of a mother your life ends. Right? We were with um, some parents a week or two ago and I was, I think it was Shelly, she the kids always want mom, right? The mom is with the kids all day long and the dad comes home and they still want mom. They want to sit by mom, they want to be with mom and I was kind of saying, yeah, it kind of stinks as a dad. You come home and the kids don't want to be with mom all the time. It's So mothers' lives end when they have children, don't they? You shed your blood, giving birth to them. You give your body to them, nursing them. And then you spend your days and years and energy raising them. You give your life for them. And the world despises that. And so we just kill them. Right? Or we send them off to daycare and then tolerate them for a couple hours at night in front of the TV and put them to bed and do it again. And right in front of that comes Psalm 8-2. Out of the mouths of babes. Nursing infants, you have established strength before your foes. And so let's thank God for the kids here. Your kids are more than welcome here. They're a delight here. And you as young children or growing children or teenagers, you know, I sometimes make fun of you, like, don't listen to people your age because they're just stupid what they say. And that's true. But it's also true that thank God for your faith where it's at, right where it's at. And you're just as mart- much a part of the body of Christ as every 80-year-old. Okay, so thank God for you as kids here. All right, let's close with verse uh four and five, what is man that you are mindful of and the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. And we saw in Hebrews too that that was applied directly to Jesus, but it's also just true of us. We find in our humanity this strange mix of being very tiny, <laughs> which are just so small. And yet, right after that in verse six, you've given them dominion over everything. <laughs> we're kings, we're lords. Both are true. We were fishing in Canada once. We'd fly in, fish, you, you know, drive up as far as you go in Ontario and then you take a float plane another 60, 80 miles in. And we were on this lake called Hurst Lake. Huge lake, really long, horseshoe-shaped, bays and, you know, you know this little boat. And, of course, the best fishing is always on the furthest end from the cabin, So we're down there fishing, and we're way back in all these bays, and a huge storm comes up, lightning. And my dad and I are not intelligent, and the fishing was good. And uh, we're an aluminum boat, and so, you know, we're going to fish right up until, like, the storm's right there. And then we'll, well, we did that, and the storm was on top of us, and lightning's cracking on. I've never been so terrified in my life, and we're, trying to scream back, you know, we don't know this lake at all and there are rock bars and <laughs> I remember my dad once yelling to me, I don't know where I'm going and I, he is lost. And you just get in that moment a sense of how little you are and how insignificant almost. I, I, I totally out of control of everything. And yet in that moment somehow my father and I were kings over the earth. We're given dominion. That's the paradox we live under. Now, where this is mainly applied is Psalm 8 can be our reality from time to time on earth, but it will be our reality forever in the new heavens and the new earth when Jesus comes back. Psalm 8 is giving you a foretaste of the eternal life to come. Like, if you go back to Psalm 7 that Pastor Jeff preached where a guy is being oppressed by enemies and calls out God to give justice, there will be a day when Psalm 7 will be irrelevant. Or in Psalm 6 where you come before God drowning your bed in tears over your own sin, there will be a day when Psalm 6 is irrelevant. Or you go to Psalm chapter 2 where we live in where the nations are in rebellion against God and you look at political candidates who are in utter rebellion against God there will be a day when Psalm 2 will be irrelevant. and Psalm 8 will be reality 24/7, 365, all day long. And in First Corinthians 15, that's applied when Jesus comes, and all things are finally and fully put under, under His feet in full subjection, and we dwell with him in the new heavens, the new earth, on this earth, forevermore. And Psalm 8 is only our reality, and then we just sing, "O oh Lord, our Lord." How majestic is your name in all the earth? And so that's where we're going. And we're training now for that day. That's what we're doing. We're training. we got the training wheels on. Let's pray. So, Father, help us. Help us to learn to sing to your glory, to learn this humble awe in this earth of um, the reality that we are so small and who are we that you're mindful of us? And yet you've given us dominion over this earth. And so, God, may we learn to sing your praise. May we learn to know the joy and delight of seeing all that you've created in creation, seeing little babies and give you glory and honor and praise. And so, God, help us to do this. Give us this gift more and more of this joy in you because we want it. And so please teach it to us even now. In Jesus' name. But I also wanted to say, you know, I just kind of rebuked our world's care for children and putting them in daycare. And I know that some of you would like it otherwise and can't help it. And so that wasn't aimed at you. I just want you to be aware of that. Charge is this. Enjoy the Lord in creation. That's why you live up here, right? Get outside, get in your kayak, put on your hiking shoes, grab a bike, go for a walk, And enjoy what God has made and give him thanks. Consider how small you are. And yet how greatly God has cared for you. And Maybe sing. May God's Spirit strengthen you to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To God the Father be all glory in us through Christ both now and today of eternity. Amen.